I have with me today, uh, of course, a fellow retired cop, but he is so much more than that. He has really had a lifetime of service. And instead of enjoying his retirement somewhere on a beach, uh, he is going to jump into the American political system. So I just knew that you had to meet him. Ron Vitello, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. R really a pleasure. So you have had, first of all, let's talk about your law enforcement career. You have had quite a, uh, a law enforcement career. Tell folks about that. Yeah, I started in the Border Patrol in 1985. Um, I, I kid with uh, the younger people now. I got in the Border Patrol before it was cool. Um, started my career in Laredo, Texas. Uh, Laredo is a place where it's, it's unique in the Border Patrol in that it has all of the things, all of the activities that patrol agents do. Um, is represented there. So train check, river watch, uh, what we call sign cutting, uh, highway checkpoints, uh, horse patrol, bike patrol, has all of those things. It's a great place to learn how to do the job. I was there a couple of different times, uh, but about nine years on the line in that space. Um, and just like a, a wonderful career, um, got promoted to supervision there, uh, went into staff work in the late 90s, uh, worked in Arizona, in, in Nogales, on the border there for a couple of years, right before 9-11. Uh, my first staff assignment at headquarters was right after 9-11 in 2002. Um, did that for a couple of years. Had a field command in Swanton, Vermont, on the Canadian border, uh, just north of Burlington, for those that are watching. And um, after that assignment, got to be a senior executive of another promotion to chief of the Rio Grande Valley in McAllen, Texas. Edinburgh is where the sector headquarters is. Uh, that happens to be my wife's hometown. So the two kids we raised moved all over those places with us. Uh, and that was the first time we had family close by. Uh, it was right during the, the first uh, Secure Fence Act. Uh, we got there in 2007. So it was the first major border wall construction uh, that we had seen in decades. Um, so very challenging assignment, but great because we had family there and you know, they had wonderful people to work with. Uh, went to, back to headquarters in 2010 to be the deputy chief at headquarters. Uh, did that for a number of years. Finally became the chief in 2017. Um, and then said yes when President Trump asked me uh, to be the ICE director. I acted in that job for a while while seeking the nomination. Um, very different kind of thing. I was a career person until that moment. Um, and Got on a committee, but didn't stay long enough to go onto the full floor. And um, that was my career. Like I said, I worked with really wonderful people. Um, I did want to do something very different. You know, I, I was I knew I was going to retire out of the headquarters. I wanted to do something very different before I left. And so being uh, the director or the acting director at ICE, uh, again, a great group of people, uh, an honor to lead them uh, in very you know interesting times. Uh, President Trump was a serious advocate for border security and having an immigration system that has integrity. So being in those roles at that time, uh, very different than the, the, the beginning of my career. I would also say that 9-11 changed the Border Patrol and the Homeland Security Enterprise in a number of ways. Obviously, the law that created DHS was in 2003, but we as an institution in the Border Patrol um, changed completely how we plan, how we did logistics, how we run operations. And, uh, it, you know, it was a real... Uh, defining time for my career as well as the the institution itself uh and then uh, when we were in the trump administration again very very different than anything we had seen before um and having somebody in the white house that has your back 
um, really makes a big difference. Um, and then in in the in in that time frame, I was at headquarters, a lot of interaction with Congress, including seeking the nomination. So why I want to do the politics is because I don't think there's enough people up there that are servants, right? When you take an mm -hmm. oath as an officer, when you're serving the community, when you're out there on the streets and the front line, protecting and helping people, um, that's that's a that's a calling that that it changes your whole outlook on life in a number of ways, right? But it's about service. Um, you know that oath is to the Constitution, which means it's to the people. And I don't think we have enough people in Washington that feel that way. I think there are too many of them that are lining their pockets. I think there are too many of them that are into the performance on the internet or on television and not doing what they need to do to protect us, to keep us safe. I mean, look at what's happening on the border. Um, it's it's amazing what we allow to happen um, and what these Democrats, including the president, just, you know, they've just destroyed all the control levels that we have there. And, and uh, it's really bad. So I'll, I'm in the race to try to correct that and to serve the people of Virginia, if they'll trust me with their vote. And it's all going to be about that. I could care less about being the junior senator from um, or the trappings of the office. I want to go in there um, and get behind the curtain, um, get my hands dirty in you know, things like energy policy, things like uh, our federal debt and, and how we budget in this country at the, at the macro level in government. And uh, obviously, um, no training needed for fixing the border problem. Well, and here's the thing. You bring up such a great point because, you know, every law enforcement officer in this country, the first thing that we do when we get hired is we raise our right hand and we swear that oath to the constitution that's what our elected officials do as well but you know you make such a great point because people in law enforcement we already have that servant mentality that public servant mentality and we're not there for we're certainly not there for the money we're not there for the glory and and all of that we're not there for the status and in fact, when you talk about the, the Border Patrol, when you talk about Homeland Security in general, I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, you started in the in the mid 80s when we had pretty good control of our southern borders. In the same time that you started, I was working narcotics in uh, the Chicagoland area and we would arrest someone, uh, you know, usually from if they were from Mexico We'd arrest them, immediately have them deported, and we'd see them back the next week. So part of what we're seeing now is a long-term problem, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Back when I started and through a lot of my career, um, probably until very recently, well, until very recently, until like the you know, 2012, 2015 timeframe, this was mostly an immigration problem. The, the illegal migration problem was mostly a Mexico problem. Um, you know, for most of the time I was in Laredo, 90% of everybody that we encountered were people who had crossed illegally from Mexico. Um, and so, you know, the jails and the crimes that they committed, it was it was mostly a problem with migration, illegal migration from Mexico. The drugs were all coming from Mexico. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very different problem as we see it today. 9-11 changed the expectation of the American people about what the border should look like and who comes and goes into the country. Um, and so we are better you know, suited as it relates to equipment and technology. The policies, let's set that aside for a minute, but they're much better equipped now on the border. But the threats are also much higher, right? This fentanyl um, didn't exist when I was a frontline agent. Um, you know, it, I, I can't imagine 
living and working in an environment where if you touch something, it could kill you. Um, we, we didn't face those kinds of challenges. And that's what the frontline sees every day. And then you have, you know, we have a proxy war in the Middle East. We have a proxy war in Europe. Um, and, and we know that China hates us, right? They're, they're, they're not competitors. They're, they're adversaries. We're in, we're in a cold war with China, whether we want to admit it or not. And they're watching what's going on at the border. And so those threats that we see overseas um, have much more access to our country and our neighborhoods and our towns and cities than they've ever had before. And so we all need to be concerned. I don't want people to freak out because we do have good frontline law enforcement people in all of our communities. But we also need to be aware that there's a gaping hole at the southern border. Um, and the, the secretary himself three weeks ago said that everyone that CBP is encountering, 85 percent of them are being released into the United States. Um, we've never seen anything like the kinds of traffic that we see now in the volume and velocity that we see it. We've never been in a place where we we were releasing 85 percent of the people that came either. So um, we're at great risk. Uh, the choices and the policies that have been acted by this administration uh, have put us in this really dangerous place. Um, and I hope it gets fixed soon. You know, when you talk about uh, 9-11-01, I, I think that as a nation, very often people have forgotten that that attack was committed by 19 people in this country illegally, 19 people who took advantage of our immigration system. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, yeah. We changed everything after 9-11 because we realized that that those people were here. We invited them, mostly. Right. They overstayed their visas and they came, you know, I think we had one of them illegally migrated from Canada, but we invited them here. We 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 gave them, you know, at their request, pilot training. You know, they learned how to fly with visas that were issued by the U.S. State Department. Um, and so, yeah, we had to change everything. Uh, we were we were at severe danger then. We just didn't know it. We didn't have the imagination uh, that people would use airplanes like they did on 9-11. Um, and, you know, we had a very lax immigration system and we're we're sort of back. We're, we're, we're in a situation where thousands, you know, uh, up to 10,000 people a day, you know, 24 hours are being encountered by the Border Patrol. And that's just encounters. You know that, you know, not all crime that's that happens, people don't get arrested. And that's what's happening at the border, too. Right there. They call it gotaways. It's kind of a term of art. But there are lots of people crossing the border that are never seen by law enforcement. Um, and so the dangers and the risks are higher than they've been in, in. It's never been as bad as it is right now. You know, prior to the 2020 uh, extreme vilification of law enforcement, um, you as the acting ICE director were dealing with this unbelievable vilification of ICE. To you know, to the which culminated in in the the American public seeing uh, ICE agents, uh, you know, the the office destroyed in Portland, um, uh, you know, agents being literally trapped in a burning, you know, federal building, things like that. What talk about that? What was that like, and how did that happen? Very surreal. We we had real concerns for the security of our men and women that were out there, and and not just you know, the frontline, you know, badge carriers, right? The guys that, that are law enforcement officers, but our attorneys, our administrative staff, they were they were stuck inside the courthouse there for quite some time. Uh, they couldn't go back to work because that block had been taken over by the crazies. Uh, imagine um, that, you know, people who go to work every day to serve you and me, 
being barricaded inside of the building that they work at just because they work for an agency that's authorized by the U.S. Congress, that's authorized by U.S. law. Um, and because people wanted to abolish ICE, we had all these politicians and these activist groups that attacked us. And in Portland, you know, people took it. I mean, it was serious. It was physical attack on top of the rhetoric. Um, and then, you know, for me, my, personally, right, I, I wasn't as much at risk. But imagine going into the halls of the House or the Senate and briefing members, right, people who swore an oath and are serving their constituency, who ran on the platform of abolishing the agency. And, and those of us in law enforcement knew that when they started saying things like abolish ICE, they weren't going to stop there. We saw what happened in the, in the riots in 2020. You know, they wanted all police gone. We've had these cities that, you know, the defund movement. Um, it's not it's not going to stop there, right? They're attacking our our campuses, literally, like the, the ideology uh, at our schools at every level um, were, were being attacked. It started with Abolish ICE, or it became, you know, in the media with Abolish ICE, but it didn't stop there. And you know, the, um, there's another podcaster um, that I listen to, Adam Carolla. He calls it the progressive movement, right? They're progressing and they are moving every single day. And it gets worse and worse, um, unfortunately, you know, and they're selling these this indoctrination to our children. It's it's a real danger for us. So you saw how the system was working and frankly not working. And uh, so when you retired, uh, again, instead of, uh, you know, laying down on a beach and hanging out with your family and things like that, you decided to jump into uh, an even dirtier business. And uh, that's politics. What what were you thinking when uh, you, you sat down and said, gee, I think I'm going to run for the Senate? Yeah, well, I was looking around and watching all the things that were happening. You know, I did. I was a lot of interaction with the House and the Senate while I was in. I, I testified on, on our behalf, on, on behalf of the government, 21 times. Um, worked on specific legislation to get passed in this House and the Senate. So I understand the 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 mechanics of how that is supposed to work and who the people and how they represent us in, in that space. Um, and then when I went through the nomination process, it's a little bit more intimate for me, right? Because I was asking senators to vote for me um, to get confirmed in that position. And so what I realized is that um, integrity matters. Um, I was tested. For, you know, hey, if you, you know, if, if you change or you do this thing for me, then maybe I'll vote for you. That, that, that was a real thing that happened to me. And so what I realized is that we don't have good people who have servants' hearts, not all of them, uh, in that space. Um, and so we need to have more of them. Um, so I'm raising my hand. I think I have the skills that add value uh, in that mix. Um, and so the Senate seat in, in uh, Virginia is up in 2024. The primary is in June. So I'm running for the Republican nomination uh, because I can't watch it anymore. Um, I got to get my hands in there uh, and try to make things better um, with the idea, like we talked about, um, as a servant, I, not for not to be the senator, but to help the people of the Commonwealth of Virginia. You know, one of the uh, things that you bring to the table is because uh, we talk a lot about the southern border. But you worked on the northern border, and I think we people kind of forget about that. Um, talk about the northern border for a minute, and and what people need to be aware of and concerned about. So all of the challenges you see on the southern border, you know, people coming in illegally, the the illegal drug trade, um, organized crime, all of those things exist on our Canadian border as well. 
there's a difference in volume, obviously. Um, people, not lots, you know, our, our economic balance with that part of the world is, is, is more similar. So uh, there's, you don't have the economic migration that you see on the southern border, uh, but you have everything else. You have people who would not otherwise be allowed in to the front door trying to sneak in between the ports of entry. Um, and so all of those challenges are the same. The volume is different. We have fewer resources there, a lot more territory to cover on the northern border um, and not a lot of technology to help. And so we rely very deeply on the people who live there um, and uh, our law enforcement relationships, right? State, local, federal, and uh, in Canada, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, uh, their federal agency, kind of like the FBI slash police force, uh, the, the local constabulary uh, uh, workforce, very good communications and active work with our government counterparts in Canada. Um, and, and obviously the, the people that live there um, are also a valuable resource for our officers because they can't be, you know, there's not enough of us to cover it like we can cover some places on the southern border. Um, and so having that citizen involvement and having a great relationship with law enforcement on the other side of the line um, really kind of helps balance it out. It's, you, you, you know, we can trust uh, our partners in Canada much more so than we can in, in certain parts of Mexico. So um, it's the dangers are there, the threats are there. 90% of the Canadian population lives within 100 miles of the border, right? So most of Canada is our, like they're literally our neighbors. Um, and then there's lots of cultural support for uh, the, you know, the terrible organized crime problem uh, with all the kind of, all the gangs you've ever heard of, uh, including uh, mafia and motorcycle gangs, et cetera. Um, and so those threats are really close to where, <clears throat> where we live, uh, close to our border. And then there's lots of cultural support also for, you know, the threats that were uh, resident in, at 9-11, right? People from the Middle East, there's a lot of cultural support. They, they have a, a more generous immigration system. So those threats that we see overseas uh, and in some of our own communities, frankly, um, are also in Canada. So, you know, it's great that we have a good relationship with the government there because there are active threats that we need to be concerned about. Do you think that Americans will have the stomach for mass deportation if the administration changes and we get back control of the border? Well, this is a very good point. Um, we never have before. Um, when, you know, the, the, we talked about the Abolish ICE movement. You know, that, that is drawn from when our men and women did planned enforcement operations for specific targets in specific neighborhoods and homes. Um, it's, it usually causes an outrage. All the big cities, all the blue cities will hate it um, some of the, the, the weaker conservatives or Republicans or people in red states are not going to like it a lot either because it's very difficult to do. It's hard to find these people all the way around. It doesn't, you know, there's a lot of them. So it's a target rich environment, but they're not easy to find. Think about the footprint that we all have, right? We have a job with a paycheck uh, and a social security card and a driver's license. Um, most of these people, especially the recently arrived, don't have any of that. Um, and so if they have a cell phone, it might not be in their name. If they have a, if they're renting an apartment or paying a gas bill, it might not be in their name either. So they're hard to find. And then when you do find them, you know, their life is, is they have a life just like you and I do. They may have kids in school. Uh, they may be caring for an elderly relative. They may have a relative that's serving in the armed forces. And so when an, a law enforcement officer knocks on that door to get a specific target, 
All of those other things are going to be part and parcel of what they have to deal with in real time. And they're super professional people. They're very compassionate in those kinds of situations. But we are going to see, you know, when it, it, when this operation starts, we're, we're going to see the headlines, the crying little kids and, and the elderly mother of the family who's, you know, left alone on her porch um, because they, you know, her son her, or her daughter or whatever are in the country illegally. Um, and, and we're enforcing the law. And so people need to realize that and they need to, you know, remember what's happening now, because the way you prevent what's happening now is you don't let it happen again. And you hold to account the people who took advantage, uh, including those that are here illegally. Yeah, that is so well said. There, it, it's not going to be pretty, but I think because of the opening of the floodgates, uh, you know, on both of our borders, uh, we're going to have to do something. You cannot you can't have a sovereign nation with open borders. Chief, I, I, boy, I wish we had about another three hours to talk. Um, but where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find out more about you and, and your campaign and what you really want for this country? I'm at uh, Chief Vitello on Twitter. Uh, and then my website is chiefvitello4senate.org. That's Chief Vitello, F-O-R, Senate. Dot org And yeah, yeah, people can find out all about the campaign, where we're going to be next, all the kinds of things that are, are part and parcel of my new role in, in trying to uh, to win this race. Chief, thanks for all your insight and for your decades of service to the country. We appreciate you being with us. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.